Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I am so glad to be with you guys again. It's been a couple months, I guess, uh, since I, I last spoke with you guys, but I'm delighted to be here with you guys, opening God's Word and sharing what God has for us all today. Um, today being the, if you follow the traditional church calendar, today's the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, as, as I think about that, um, the first Sunday of Advent represents hope and the hope of the coming King and prophecies fulfilled um, in Jesus as he was born. And so I invite you guys as we trudge through scripture together today to reorient your mind and your soul toward the idea of hope. So if you guys will, I'm going to kick it old school, stand up. We're going to read God's word together today. And today we will be in Matthew chapter four, verses 18 through 25, as we um, continue our series today. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for making your word available to us to be able to have, to literally hold in our hands your revelation of your son, Jesus. God, we are so thankful that he came and that he calls us yet. Lord, I pray that you would use today to continue that call in the lives of all who are here. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So it wouldn't take anybody very long to size me up and recognize that I'm not abundantly blessed with athletic prowess. I'm someone more at home with a snorty laugh, a pocket protector, and a nice pair of slacks. I'm not someone who is prone to set records in marathons or bench weight double or bench press double my weight, albeit I am a nerd who likes to jog every now and then. And I vividly recall this great moment in elementary school that proved to my classmates that I was more than a snort laugher obsessed with Star Wars, Power Rangers, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Can anybody relate? Full disclosure, I was typically in the last cohort to get picked for any team in physical education class. And the particular dodgeball game that comes to my mind was very, very heated. All of my teammates had gotten hit by a ball and were out on the bench. The other team had five remaining players, and all three balls that were in play 
belong to the other team at this particular moment. They spread out across the middle boundary, waiting for an opportune moment to pounce on me like a lion circling prey. I had just done my very best job to pray and blend into the back wall. One of them pulled the ball back and fired the ball at me at that back wall. And in a moment of sheer luck, I felt the ball hit my knees and I proceeded to clench my knees together as hard as I could around the ball. My team started to cheer me on and hope was growing. They were down to four after the thrower of the one I caught between my knees begrudgingly hit the bench. I hit one with the ball that my knees caught down to three. I caught another of the balls in play, two. I popped another opponent in the elbow, one. One to one, mano a mano, and I had two of the three balls that were in play. I blocked the ball from my opponent with my two balls as they threw, and then boom. I nailed the opponent in the back as they were retreating to their back wall to blend in like I was. Elam's team wins. My teammates were cheering and eager for me to stay on their team for the next round. And from that point on, I had made my mark thanks to some knobby knees and a prayer. I was no longer relegated to be in the last cohort to be picked. I had finally arrived somewhere in the middle. Amen. Those moments when my classmates' perspective about me being a nobody when it came to recreation, games, sports, etc., to being a valued somebody on the court has stuck with me forever. There's a special kind of joy that bubbles up where once sadness and loneliness and feelings of being an inadequate outcast once reigned. When nobodies are recognized as somebodies, the trajectory of life changes. The narrative changes. A new hope. Anybody catch that Star Wars reference? A new hope dawns. A fresh hope is kindled. I've entitled today's message, The Call, The Cost, and The Continuum. And so for you, those of you who are taking notes, I would recommend dividing your notes up as such. The Call, The Cost, The Continuum. So we're a culture who likes a backstory, and I think a little backstory is necessary to get us to where we need to arrive to today. In the set of scriptures we all stood and read together, there are five characters, six if you count Zebedee, all of which would have been Hebrew boys at some time in their life in first century Israel. They would have been born to working class Jewish families and around age six, they would enter a Jewish educational program or system called Beit Sefer, B-E-T space S-E-F-E-R. And in this educational endeavor, they would be under the supervision of a rabbi and be required to memorize the Torah. Those would be the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Penta, five, Pentateuch. And they would have to memorize that by heart, and that is every Jewish boy. I would have dropped out at Deuteronomy. And they would do this, they would start at age six, and they would have about four, four years to memorize those first five books 
of the Bible. And then there would come a time of questioning, questioning of their qualifications to proceed on in this educational system around age 10. Around age 10, a determination would be made to see if they were worthy to proceed to the next level of education, the Beit Talmud, B-E-T hyphen T-A-L-M-U-D. And thus joining what's called the rabbis Talmudim. Now throughout this educational process, there was this lovely, lovely thought and phrase and saying that still exists today, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So in this school, they would literally follow the rabbi as close as they could get to know what the rabbi knew. And if you were to observe a rabbi and his Talmudim, even in modern day Israel, you would see a flock of younger educatees following their rabbi, even into the bathroom. Don't know what they expect to learn in there, but hey, you never know. So they would then enter into that if they were lucky enough to make the cut. And this is a very, very competitive system. There aren't a lot of rabbis. There's a limited number and limited number of spots for people to proceed on in their education. And if you didn't make the cut, somebody would essentially say, you're not worthy. Go and go back with your family. And so typically, as far as occupations goes, the boys that didn't make the cut would default to their family business. And they would apprentice under their father or their uncle, et cetera, so on and so forth. But if you were so lucky enough, then, and, and they, would, they would have another kind of cut around age 14 to 15. And if you made that final cut, you would proceed on to Beit Midrash, B-E-T space M-I-D-R-A-S-H. And that is where you learn to do what the rabbi does. In Beit Sefer, you spend time with the rabbi. You memorize the first five books of the Bible. In Beit Talmud, you literally, I forgot to add this point, so if you make it to Beit Talmud, not only do you memorize the first five books of the Bible, but you memorize the entire Old Testament. Again, I would be out at Deuteronomy. So um, they would go Genesis through Malachi and Beit Talmud. And then in Beit Midrash, you would actually learn to do what the rabbi did, and that would have lasted from about age 14 or 15, and then you would begin teaching typically as a rabbi and take your own students around age 30. Now, I know that was kind of boring history, but it adds power to the scripture that we're sharing together today. Now to our story. 15, 20 years later, these boys are living and identifying as those who didn't make the cut deemed unworthy by a rabbi, defaulted into their family business and apprenticeship with their identity solely rooted in their family of origin and their occupation. They were nobodies. They weren't picked. Our doing flows from and out of our being, our identity. To put in other words, our being and our identity determines our doing. Our identity is the wellspring of our doing. And if our identity is rooted in our family and our occupation or past failure for that matter, our lives will be arranged to be familial, productive, and successful, but not necessarily faithful. Enter Jesus walking in the story, walking by the Sea of Galilee. 
And he speaks directly to the identity of the other characters, to their very being and what they are doing drastically and immediately changes. They are being picked. They are making the team the call. The response is immediate. Action is required to be with Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, if it were me, and I would assume you, you, we would probably want to know the terms of this agreement. There would be hesitation, if you will, a moment of counting the cost. If we had failed at achieving a career goal 15 to 20 years ago, we would probably already have new career goals and likely given up on past dreams and moved on. We might even be fairly or quite successful in our alternative career. And then someone walks up, extends us an opportunity to pursue a career or dream we'd previously failed to have been able to pursue, we'd probably have some questions, some apprehension thinking, if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. Peter and Andrew's immediate response, without known prior knowledge of who Jesus is, suggests that there was something calling deeper to them in the nature of Jesus, indicating authority, and only the authority of God could ameliorate or eliminate any hesitation, resulting in unquestioning and immediate obedience to two words, follow me. Jesus did not have to present his credentials. The Spirit confirmed his credentials in the hearts of those whom he issued an invitation. Their immediate response to the call of Jesus would also suggest purity of motive. They wouldn't have even had time to scheme some sort of transactional relationship here. They would not have had time to consider any sort of secondary gain. Their goal and intent was obedience, period. Not perks of being around a rabbi, not climbing the social ladder, not more knowledge, being with Jesus, being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did was the end goal. I was recently watching the Santa Claus with my kids and first I felt really old. That was my first feeling because this movie came out in 1994 when I was seven and that was 29 years ago and I'll let you do the math. I don't math in public. Second, the importance of reading the fine print was reiterated to me. So I'll catch up. When Santa falls off the roof of Scott Calvin and a clatter arises outside, the Santa that fell off the roof disappeared, leaving the coat or his coat and a business card. Scott Calvin pulls out the business card and in large, bold font, the card reads Santa Claus. Okay, great. So the protagonist, Tim Allen, Scott Calvin, puts on the coat. No harm done, right? To complete Santa's responsibilities the remainder of Christmas Eve, and as the plot progresses and Scott gets the sleigh back to the North Pole, the lead elf, Bernard, gets a magnifying glass out, and what appeared to be a nice, lovely little border on Santa's business card was the fine print. 
In putting on the suit and entering the sleigh, the wearer waives any and all rights to any previous identity, real or implied, and fully accepts the duties and responsibilities of Santa Claus in perpetuity until such time that wearer becomes unable to do so by either accident or design. There's fine print to the call of Jesus. And we must look to verses in other Gospels to further elucidate the fine print. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If any want to be my disciple, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We've heard the third issue already, but the first two are also necessary. The fine print. Again, he says, follow me, but he more clearly articulates what that looks like. Self-denial and daily taking up their cross. One of the greatest theologians that I've come across to date is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he didn't write it just because it was a good thing to write about. He lived it. He was a Lutheran German pastor in World War II, and he did not just talk about discipleship, he lived it and unfortunately died it. He stood up for against the German government who wanted everyone to pledge their allegiance to Adolf Hitler, and he refused. He would not participate he already kind of had a target on his back because of that. And then he proceeded to help uh, people who were struggling and being oppressed by the German government as well. He was eventually arrested and detained in a prison. And then he was eventually taken to a concentration camp at Flossburg. And he was hanged. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to say. When Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. Follow me is a weighty invitation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I face death daily. I die daily. Now, I will say this. In the fine print, there's often a misunderstanding in regards to the relationship of faith and human effort. What you do will not save you, but what you do is an overflow of Christ's saving power within you. And the thought that as a follower invited to follow Jesus and disciple in the school of Christ, the thought that you don't have to do anything is a bit misleading. And I would qualify this statement that you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. Absolutely not but your salvation will affect you in ways that you do things differently. Paul informed the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And in our scripture passage today, Jesus instructs his disciples to do something. In the NRSV that we use, he instructs them to follow me. In the NLT translation, there's another word added, come, follow me. There's a great book called Habits of the Household by Justin Whitmell Early. 
It's a book whose subheading articulates what it's about, practicing the story of God in everyday family rhythms. And I can't recommend it enough, particularly to people who have small children and a young family. At the end of each chapter, the following question is issued. God's love inspires our action, but our action does not inspire God's love. Our family habits will not change God's love for us, but God's love for us should change our family habits. Here in our story, Jesus speaks into Peter and Andrew's being. By inviting them to follow him, he is saying, you're a somebody now. Come and join my Talmudim. Know what I know. Do what I do. Jesus is redefining their identity. Becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a disciple, redefines us and gives us a new identity. As forgetful people, quick to identity, amnesia, discipleship reminds us of who we truly are, who he truly is, and our relationship to him. There's a lovely quote by theologian Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Now let's move to the cost. Matthew 4, 21 through 22. He went from there. He saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. In this set of scriptures, the cost of following Jesus is demonstrated and a different facet is added to this set of scriptures with the addition of a family member. Peter and Andrew were alone in their boat, so far as we know. But in the boat of James and John, there's somebody else there, at least in Matthew's gospel. There might have been more people. In other gospels, they talk about having hired hands also present in Mark's gospel. The cost, the stakes are high to be like Jesus. Following Jesus, if you're taking notes, I would invite you to just write following Jesus, dot, dot, dot. Following Jesus is a walk away from independence and security and toward dependence on and faith in the almighty creator of the universe. Following Jesus is a call to downward mobility against the grain of up and to the right upward mobility and curtain climbing that our culture and society just eats up. Following Jesus is a walk away from the ties of family in a patriarchal society toward the kingdom of God. Again, if you look at parallel verses in Mark, you'll find that not only were they walking away from Zebedee, but most likely also their friends, hired hands. And the fact that their family business had hired hands would suggest that they were lucrative enough to be in a financial position to hire extra hands, suggesting at least James and John were immediately walking away from financial security. Following Jesus is a walk away from multiple competing personal, societal, and familial expectations toward the singular expectation of a singular ultimate source of expectation. His opinion is the only opinion that has ever mattered, that matters, and will ever matter, despite what cultural norms might otherwise suggest. Following Jesus is a walk away from comfort and certainty into the glorious unknown of faith. 
walking away from comfort and certainty, positions believers in a place where faith is possible. And faith is necessary to follow Jesus. Walking away from your personal expectations, preconceived notions and the expectations and preconceived notions of others can be one of the most difficult aspects of following Jesus. There's this lovely film called CODA. Anybody seen CODA? CODA is an acronym. I'll bring you up to speed. And I apologize in advance for spoiler alerts. CODA is an acronym that stands for Child of Deaf Adult. And in this lovely story, there's a family, mother, father, son, and daughter. And mother, father, and son are all deaf. Daughter is hearing. And she lives her entire life acting as her parents and her brother's interpreter. As she grows and matures, she realizes her gift. And ironically, her gift is singing. And she sings beautifully. Her gift is a gift that nobody close to her can even appreciate. And as she moves toward her calling and as she's working through high school and moving toward what she feels her calling in life is, she's moving toward a musical conservatory. And as she's moving toward that, her parents' fishing business is also growing and they're requiring more and more and more translation services from their daughter. And their expectations of their daughter was to stay and stick around in the family business so it could continue to grow. And there's this lovely pivotal moment in the midst of this tension where she just runs away. She just goes away. And they have this family struggle like none other. And then finally, her family, again, spoiler alert, her family Uh, finally starts to interact with other community members. Their son starts to learn to help them all communicate better with the people uh, that they deal with in their business. And then the daughter finally gets an interview and she gets to audition at this great musical conservatory. And, oh gosh, the people up in the wings are her family. As she sings... It's lovely, but it also demonstrates this beautiful image of sometimes to pursue your calling in life. You have to even break away from one of God's greatest gifts to you, your family. Perhaps Peter, Andrew, James, and John made it to Beit Talmud. We don't know. The middle level. Perhaps they'd heard the words of the prophet Micah taught in the synagogue or the temple but they would have known what God's actionable expectations of them would have been as outlined in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. First off, an aside, I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus was walking here. They would have recognized, hey, he's walking. Wait, that sounds familiar. Walk humbly 
with your God. By saying, follow me, Jesus is implicitly asking, where do your loyalties lie? Where is your allegiance? The immediate dropping of the nets implicitly responds, our allegiance is to you and nothing or anyone else. And our action supports our belief, not security, not our family, not our culture, not our country or our nation, not to upward mobility, identifying here that they recognize all those other things that we could pledge allegiance to as a gift of grace overflowing from the wellspring of heaven. Now, let's look at a parallel set of verses on cost counting in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and he said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who will see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The cost. The stakes are very, very high to be like Jesus. Now, sometimes it's helpful to appreciate the magnitude of a situation by juxtaposing the event with a separate, similar event resulting in a different outcome. I would entitle this section, and it's been entitled by theologians for many, many years, The Would-Be Followers. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, we see some would-be's. And not the kind that burrow in your deck in the summer. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home, Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, would-be number one musters up his calling on his own without Christ calling him. This will never work. Christ's calling to follow him is not something that we can muster. Simply because our willpower and grit and pulling ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps, it reeks of self-sufficiency and there are no self-sufficient disciples. Only faith-reliant disciples. And the only way to position oneself where faith is possible is by relinquishing hold on the things of this world that we find comfort and security in. Jesus goes on to tell would-be number one that following him might include but is not limited to losing comfort of not having the promise of shelter, sleep, or a comfortable place in which to do so. We don't know what happens to would-be number one, but we certainly don't see him again. 
Would be number two is called by Jesus as Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Follow me. And he replied by stating, but first, let me bury my father, which would be a familial and societal norm in Jewish culture. And there are also no but firsts in response to the call of Jesus to follow him. And we see that by the immediacy in which Peter, Andrew, James, and John responded to Jesus. Following Jesus will break cultural and societal norms. Burying the dead had many laws, Jewish laws surrounding it in Jewish culture. And following Jesus may require opposing worldly authority. Would-be number three, like would-be number one, musters up his calling on his own and struggles to let familial responsibilities, which are important but not more important than following Jesus, override the supreme calling to follow Jesus. And what differentiates would-be number one and would-be number three is that would-be number three wants following Jesus on his own terms. He didn't even pause after I will follow you, but he kept going with the terms and conditions of his following Jesus. Now, in today's segment of Scripture, there's no direct and explicit articulation of the question, who do you say I am? Which is a question we've been asking in this series. But there's some clear yet implicit articulation of some of the identity of Christ in this passage, identifying his role of rabbi by calling disciples to follow him. But overwhelmingly, there's the unspoken question that would be asked by newly inaugurated disciples of Jesus. Who does he say that I am? And that's a question that we can all ask and we need to ask. Who does he say that I am? Who does he say our identity is? How does he identify us? For four guys who've been rejected by their culture and failed rabbi school, who likely self-identify and are identified by those around them as just a guy who didn't make the cut, losers unqualified to follow a rabbi and relegated to defaulting to participating in the family business, identifying as sons and fishermen, enter Jesus and they're given a new identity. Jesus calls out the true identity that is lying dormant within them as he can call out the true identity that lies dormant, that was planted in each of us when we were created. The same identity that lies dormant within us until awakened by the moving and the stirring of the Holy Spirit within us. That new identity comes at a cost but resets the course of life into a beautiful continuum. The life of discipleship, being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what he did. All right, bear with me here. We've seen this schema before. We've seen this model before demonstrated leading up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, who we know has defaulted to his earthly family business as a carpenter, as identified in Mark 6.3, he's rejected by everybody in his hometown, and they don't identi identify him as a rabbi or priest or teacher or, or as the son of God. They identify him by his occupation. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. He's identified by his occupation and his family. And he's lived in this space at least since age 12. There's this big gap in Jesus' story that we know up until about age 12 when his parents forget him in the temple 
Anybody forgot their kids? Okay, I'm by myself here. I don't feel quite so bad since Mary forgot the Savior of the world. Um, anyway, but we see him there, and he's asking questions, which was a way of teaching. So we can guess Jesus probably maybe made it to Beit Talmud. But now we see him. There's one verse that summarizes essentially nearly 20 years of his life, and he shows up, he's a carpenter. So there was a point in time where Jesus was not recognized as someone who made the cut either. But then, as we've talked about previously, we go in through Matthew, there's this defining and pivotal moment when he is baptized by John the Baptist, and he comes up out of the water, and there is a clearly articulated identity spoken into being. As he comes up from the water in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me joy. He is called, he is called dearly loved and bringer of joy. His call is then followed by a cost immediately following his moment of identity and definition from heaven, the cost comes in the desert, a test, a test of allegiance, costing the comfort of food and sustenance for a sustained period of time, the cost of self-denial, the cost of enduring temptation to exercise power, the cost of tests of character and integrity. The continuum continues as Jesus picks up where John the Baptist left off after being captured, preaching, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now in our scripture today, we see a repeat of that same scheme and story. Jesus shows up, speaks into the being of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who've lived likely near 20 years doing as their identity, fishing, being identified as sons of Jonah and sons of Zebedee. In saying, follow me, he is saying, you are beloved, you bring me joy, you are worthy, you make heaven's cut. And then they experience the cost of disappointing family and not meeting their expectations, personal, societal, familial, the cost of denying self of security, the cost of giving up a career, the cost of forsaking comfort. First the call, then the cost, now the continuum. Matthew 4, 23 through 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him, brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The continuum, the effects of answering the call to follow me and counting the cost and following Jesus are perpetual and exponential in magnitude. Answering the call and counting the cost unlocks the power. Hillbilly Greek here, the dynamis, where we get the word dynamite, dynamic, that Luke references in Acts 1-8 when the Holy Spirit comes and power is unleashed. Jesus demonstrates the tenets of his ministry and subsequently the ministry of those who count the cost and enter the call and they're threefold. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Follow me is an invitation and an empowerment for disciples like you and me to be teachers, proclaimers, and healers. 
This is consistent with Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4, 18 through 19. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After disciples are called, we see Jesus empowering them to do what he did using the same word used in Acts 1-8, dynamis. Then Jesus called the 12 together in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power, and that is the same exact tense of that word, dynamis, dynamite, and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. There's a lot of people who kind of argue certain points and, and people like to kind of debate teaching versus preaching, teaching versus proclamation. But they are always together in Scripture, always together when Jesus releases power. Teaching and proclamation, which Jesus empowered his disciples to do, they're not dueling entities. They're mutualistic and dependent upon each other to create a discipleship model that is replicable and leads to healing. Proclamation is always tied to the good news and the gospel of Jesus. Proclamation is always tied to bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and letting the oppressed go free. Proclamation creates converts. Teaching creates disciples. Discipleship is the fertile soil in which spiritual fruit is grown and cultivated. It's through proclamation that we come to and are with Jesus It's through teaching that we are becoming disciples and being like Jesus. And as a result of these two things and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do what he does. Discipleship is how we can experience kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven through being like Jesus, following him into prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, study, simplicity, service, and submission, following him to engage the marginalized, following him in self-denial, and ultimately following him into the cross-bearing life, discipleship. It's the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's the goal of discipleship. It's not you, it's others. So my invitation today, always my first invitation is for you to know Jesus, who is the gospel, who is the good news, who is the kingdom of God coming near to each of us, wanting to dwell in us, abide in us, and we in him. And so I today invite you to lean into the Holy Spirit as it convicts and stirs your heart to know him more and experience the transformative power of the gospel. As in the NLT version of today's scripture, prior to follow me is come. I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, come to him. He is walking along the beach of your life, just begging you. Come, 
come. He's saying to you as he does in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, let him give you rest. Allow him to speak your true identity into being. Is there hesitation? I invite you to be like Peter, Andrew, James, and John and be obedient, instantaneously obedient to the call of Christ. My prayer is that you are not an individual stuck in would-be mode, as a would-be follower with something holding you back or something distracting you away from his call, but that you would enter into the discipled life. What barriers are impeding your obedience to follow Jesus today? Is it your family? Is it your possessions or your lack thereof? Is it your expectations? Is it complacency? Is it your culture? Is it comfortability? My second invitation requires some introspection and seeking the Spirit to really shake off the blinders of false self and pride and allowing us to bear ourselves before the loving kindness and tenderness of the Father. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus or are you a would-be? Are you a convert? Have you been a convert for many years, missing out on the full measure and depths of discipleship? Are you merely with Jesus, but let it stop there prior to pursuing being like him and doing what he did? Are you a spectator? Are you a participant? Is your allegiance to Jesus or do you have mixed allegiances? My prayer today is that we may all be with Jesus, be like him, and do what he did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being in this place. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way. Thank you for sending Jesus to allow the kingdom to come near to us, to break the separation that exists between us and you. God, I pray if the cost seems weighty today, Lord, that we could come to you and you help us bear it. And we bear it together. And God, I pray that hearts are moved so that we can just do what you did to everybody around us, Lord, and love like you love. Lord, just make us people of love. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.